0: hi everyone welcome back to another episode of talks in class i'm jenna thank you so much for joining me today before we get into this week's episode if you are listening to the pod in real time next week is thanksgiving and i've decided not to do an episode next week for the holiday we're not traveling but we are going to try to do something to celebrate thanksgiving here in la so i'm going to take the end of next week off and eat some food, relax, and put up my Christmas decorations because it is officially time to kick off the season. It actually feels so weird to think about putting up holiday decorations now that we're living in LA because obviously it doesn't feel like Christmas. It is a little gloomy today so it feels a little bit more like winter but I am trying to get into the spirit anyway. It's my favorite season and usually I already have my holiday decorations up by this time also slightly unrelated but talking about christmas just reminded me we've been watching old south park episodes and you guys that show is so freaking funny i didn't realize it's been on for so long and it's still on or how much I clearly watched the show, like growing up and even through my teen years and like into my 20s. There are so many episodes that I remember so clearly. And what made me think of this is that I have a VHS tape, like an actual, you know, tape, blink VHS tape at my mom's house with the South Park Christmas special with Mr. Henke, the Christmas Pooh, recorded on it that I taped off of Comedy Central in 1999 or whenever that special originally aired. And it is amazing, especially because it has all of the commercials on it because I taped it off TV, which is actually would be a great segue into this week's episode. But I will kick it off first with my what good happened for the week. And this week, my what could happen is just a very simple thing, but something that brought me joy nonetheless. I managed to get two books that I had on hold (laughs) at the library for my Kindle that came through. I got off the waiting list. So they're books that I had been wanting to read. And hot tip, if you're somebody who is a big reader, and you don't use the library, I the library in general is just like a hot tip. Like you can literally check out books for free, but if you have a Kindle, you can use your library card to get Kindle books through the library. You just have to figure out what app that your local library uses to support uh, Kindle books. Mine uses the app Libby. And it's great because you can get them for free. However, because there are limited numbers, just like actual library books, there are often waitlists for new releases and popular books. So I always have a long waitlist. And I'm just really excited when I get off of the waitlist for one. And I actually got off the waitlist for two. So I just finished one and I'm about to start the other one. I love having a book that I'm excited to read. I try to read every night before I go to bed. So I always like when I have one ready to go as soon as I finish the other one. So this week's episode is a topic I'm really excited about. It's kind of a combination of a lot of my favorite topics, pop culture, identity, media, technology, obviously nostalgia, and how all of these things combine to create a very specific time for advertising in the 90s and the early 2000s. When I think about pop culture in the 90s and Y2K, in those years when I was a tween and kind of an early teenager, and really just started interacting with media and pop culture in my own way, rather than filtered through my parents or specifically children's programming, I think about a lot of things, obviously, TV shows, movies, music, things like MTV and the iconic teen movies in late 90s, especially I feel like that was a golden age for teen movies. And then obviously things like boy bands and and just pop stars and kind of the massive celebrity that was happening in the music industry at the time. But I also think about advertising a lot, probably just as much or at least almost just as much as I think about other more traditional entertainment forms of media. Growing up watching kids programming, you know, programming for children, I saw a ton of kid-focused, kid-targeted ads constantly. And just as they were intended to, of course, these ads shaped my understanding of what it meant to be a kid, what I wanted, what I thought was cool. And this obviously continued into my teen years in the 2000s, but I think... As I got into the 2000s, print ads became really important to me versus just television commercials. I feel like print ads were to the early 2000s kids, what social media was to maybe the early to mid 2010s kid, it shaped what we aspired for aesthetically, which brands we wanted to kind of associate our aesthetic or our identity with kind of who we wanted to identify as. I used to decorate my bedroom walls with ads from magazines. I mean, they were plastered all over my bedroom walls because these ads had a way of so clearly communicating an aesthetic or an identity in a way that even the editorial kind of more fashion focused content did not do. I would hang those Steve Madden ads, you know, with the weird cartoon girls with the really big heads all over my walls because they showed this really cool kind of trendy aesthetic that I wanted. There was this one with the girl, she has leopard print slippers on and she's holding a phone and I think she has rollers in her hair. That ad will live in my brain forever ever. Or I would hang like Roxy or hang 10 or any sort of surf brand ads all over my wall because obviously that showed like a beach surfer aesthetic which if you've been here a while you already know I was way too into (laughs) back then. Or those candies ads from the late 90s with Mark McGrath or there were the Jenny McCarthy ads. I remember there was one they were so vulgar some of them. There was one with Jenny McCarthy in a bathroom. And I think she was scrubbing a toilet. There was also one, I think, where she was sitting on a toilet, a lot of (laughs) toilets. And there were several of those Candies ads with Mark McGrath shirtless in various forms of kind of provocative uh, situations. And those will also forever occupy space in my brain, I think. But I liked those because Candies were trendy clothes, but also they were edgy. And they made me feel kind of rebellious and it's just like now we interact with or follow influencers or social media accounts in general that represent things that we want to identify with in some way or another as i got a little older into my early teen years marketing was also i feel like really integrated into traditional entertainment media that i was watching whether it was intentional or not, I feel like they did it really, really well and creatively and it it worked on me for sure. I mean, product placement was obviously really big, but there were these other kind of creative things that were happening, especially in the late 90s, I remember. The one that always stands out in my mind is the Dawson's Creek American Eagle Partnership, which I think was season three of Dawson's Creek, which would have been the year 2000, actual Y2K. And American Eagle did the whole wardrobe for the show that season, and they made a big deal about promoting this everywhere, right? They would have commercials after the show. Uh, they They put it on the American Eagle website, which websites in themselves were of a new format of advertising at that time really i actually remember when i started noticing with an awareness that every commercial included a website at the end of it and now i mean this is everywhere right a commercial ends and you see a website but before that it was usually a phone number if it was something that you had to communicate with or if it was something like a store or a clothing brand you were just expected to drive to the physical location But I remember when I realized, oh my God, every commercial now ends with, you know, visit us at www.americaneagle.com or or whatever it was. It was just this light bulb moment where I realized that the internet really was a thing, right? Like it was going to change the way that we did things. But that's a different conversation for a different episode. Maybe I need to do a whole episode on that. Anyway, the American Eagle Dawson's Creek thing was so genius because of course I wanted to buy the same sweater that Joey Potter wore on last week's episode of Dawson's Creek. And because of this partnership, I could buy the same sweater that Joey Potter wore on last week's episode. To me as a kid, it didn't feel like advertising at all, right? To me, it felt like a convenience, like almost like they were doing me a service. They just made it really easy for me to find what I wanted, which was the same clothes as the people that I watched on TV. That's something that I wanted. And this advertising deal made it really easy for me to find that. So it didn't register for me as advertising. And the same thing happened, I think much less intentionally, but probably on a much greater scale, even with Von Dutch when The Simple Life premiered. Von Dutch really was an early example of kind of viral PR, like celebrity marketing, like the 2003 version of an influencer gifting campaign. You never saw a commercial or maybe even a magazine ad for Von Dutch, but suddenly it was just everywhere and every celebrity was wearing it. It was just, you could not escape it. Like there was some secret cool person memo that said cool people wear this brand and boom, all of a sudden everybody who was cool and famous and popular had it. And then there were other kind of less traditional advertising methods that I think also worked really well in those days where they would kind of integrate different types of media together to like cross promote like, featuring popular music artists or a popular celebrity on a already popular TV show to cross promote that celebrity, maybe they had a movie coming out, or maybe it was just because or maybe it was a band that had an album coming out. So they would somehow write it into the show's script that this band was like performing, you know, like fallout boy was just in tree hill for some reason. It went over my head as advertising, you know, that felt natural. I was like, yeah, Yes, that totally makes sense that Fall Out Boy <laughs> would be performing in Tree Hill. And there were also a ton of giveaways. At this time, I remember this being such a huge marketing technique when I was a kid. There were sweepstakes for literally everything. You could win toys, cars. You could win a million dollars by playing McDonald's Monopoly. You could win stuff, you know, off of the caps. In your Snapple, you could collect points and win stuff from every brand, from, you know, Camel cigarettes to Pepsi. There was some drama in the 90s with Pepsi. They had this campaign, I think it was called Pepsi Stuff, and it was essentially just a point system where if you bought a lot of Pepsi, you could, like, compile your points and win prizes. And they said at one point that you could win a jet, like, a literal jet. which obviously they didn't give anybody a jet and I think there was some sort of controversy around it. I should should Google this. My favorite 90s sweepstakes that will forever stand out in my mind was the one where you could win a shopping spree at Toys R Us. I think it was a partnership with Nickelodeon in some way, but it was a timed shopping spree at Toys R Us. So the idea was that if you won, you would have a, a preset amount of time to run through Toys R Us and just take everything that you could grab within that allotted amount of time. And I literally, dreamed about winning this. Like it occupied so much of my brain as a kid. I would think about the strategy that I would use, (laughs) like my path around the store and which items I would prioritize. My plan if I won this sweepstakes was that I would go for the big stuff first to make sure that I got those high ticket items. Like, you know, the kid size Barbie Jeep that you could drive around that I always wanted, but never got. (laughs) and then I would move to the smaller items like I'd go from the Barbie Jeep to the Barbie Island and I'd grab all the Barbies. I had a whole I had a whole plan. I never won, obviously. But I dreamed about this a lot and it felt like a real possibility in my mind. This was the age of entering to win a car from the local car dealership that was parked in the middle of your local mall. And of course, so much of this stuff was aimed specifically at teens, and even children. Not giveaways specifically, but just advertising in general. I remember just experiencing so much that felt so specifically curated for me. Prior to the 1980s, there were actually pretty strict regulations on advertising to children. And that all changed in the 80s. It was deregulated largely, which meant that not only could companies create products that were specifically for kids, but they could create advertising that was made to market those products directly to the kids. And I think they did tighten this back up a bit in the 90s, but I don't know, you guys, like growing up in the 90s, watching mostly kids programming on Nickelodeon and whatever, you know, kids channels I watched, I remember constantly seeing commercials that were so obviously made for kids. some of the ad campaigns for kids back then were so wild. Like, I would love to know what these marketing teams (laughs) were thinking when they put together some of these campaigns. Do you guys remember the honeycomb cereal mascot? I feel like this haunts millennials dreams. It was like a little cartoon animal monster thing that was just insanely hungry. Like its whole point was that it was just like hungry and obsessed with honeycomb and it would just scream about honeycomb through these commercials. And then there were the Gushers commercials, which always felt unsettling to me, where people's heads would turn into giant fruit when they ate Gushers. I mean, definitely memorable, but kind of scary, right? Like, I'm not sure that that would make me want to eat Gushers. I think it might have the opposite effect, actually. Because why would I want to eat something that would make me turn into a giant cartoon banana that was terrifying. <laughs> oh my God, and those Quiznos commercials. These were from the early 2000s, I think, but it was a weird rat thing that kind of looked like a puppet. Those were legitimately terrifying, and I was older by that point. I think it was in high school. I would love a word with the creative team behind that character because they should be fired and probably billed for all of our therapy. But then, of course, there were less terrifying but still very iconic TV commercials that we probably all remember as kids. The Flintstones Fruity Pebble commercials, I feel like those were on for years. Or Tony the Tiger telling us that Frosted Flakes were great. And just so many toy commercials too that I remembered so vividly, which obviously means that they were doing a good job at marketing towards children. The Mall Madness board game commercials, or the Bop It commercials, those were so good. And then so many TV jingles, like the Mentos jingle. I always think about Ty in Clueless sitting on the couch in Cher's living room singing along to that jingle. And, you know, we all knew that by heart, I probably still know it by heart. And because we experienced media so differently back then, I mean, we still had a monoculture, these commercials really had power, not just to influence consumer behavior, convince people to buy things, but to really impact and shape pop culture, and also just to become pop culture in their own right. We were all watching the same shows, the same movies, reading the same magazines, you know, listening to the same radio stations, and we couldn't skip advertising, right? It was a different time. We couldn't fast forward live TV. We couldn't pay for an ad-free version of the radio that didn't exist. We couldn't avoid seeing advertisements in magazines. And now, We don't have to engage with advertising the way that we used to, but everything also is just so curated for us individually. Our experiences with pop culture are really dictated by algorithms instead of by the TV networks or the record companies or, you know, the big advertising agencies. Even the ads that we see are... Mostly, specifically chosen for us by algorithms based on our behaviors that all of our devices are tracking across, you know, everywhere and everything that we do on the internet, 24 hours a day. But in the 90s and the early 2000s, advertising had this power to become pop culture phenomenons, just like a viral TikTok video or TikTok trend could now. And I think advertising really shaped our our worlds and our understanding of pop culture and trends and just kind of how we interacted with pop culture in a lot of the same ways that social media does now. And there are a lot of examples of viral marketing that became pop culture in themselves, especially from the late 90s. My first thought, of course, is the entire Got Milk campaign of the 90s. I mean, this campaign blows my mind. I mean, of all things, to go just absolutely bonkers level viral. But an ad campaign for literal milk, just cows, dairy, just dairy milk. (laughs) People were obsessed with these ads, myself included. If you somehow do not know what this is, in the 90s, there was this giant ad campaign where there were print ads that would feature celebrities with milk mustaches that they would probably Photoshop on. I imagine they don't look very real. And then they would have a little blurb about why that particular celebrity loves drinking milk in just like this tiny black or white font on the photo. I think the aesthetic component had a lot to do with why we loved them. They were, they felt more about the celebrity that was being featured in the ad than about the campaign. It was a big picture of the celebrity, they had the milk mustache, there was a little blurb, and then at the bottom, it would just say, Got milk with a question mark in all lowercase, kind of small, just this minimalistic like sans serif font. These were so insanely popular. I had an entire wall of my bedroom covered, covered in these ads, like wallpaper, floor to ceiling tiled with these ads that I would collect from magazines. I even had a Milk poster that I bought at the mall. I think it was Cookie Monster. So not only did I have a wall of the ads, but then I had the poster, and I still have a stack of the the Got Milk ads that were actually on my bedroom walls at some point in time. Every single celebrity or pop culture figure that you could think of had one. Britney Spears, Cindy Crawford, I mean, professional athletes, even cartoons, there's a Bart Simpson one. I mean, everybody had a Got Milk ad. Some of these, old got milk ads that I still have actually have a a milk ad on both sides of the page from the magazine, meaning that the magazines put so many of these ads in them that you would actually be flipping through a magazine and see these ads multiple pages in a row. And I was personally partial to the print campaigns because I could obviously hang them on my wall and use them to like decorate my binders and things like that. But there were TV commercials, there were billboards, there were posters, like I said, there's a book, I think there were t shirts. I mean, this was just huge. It was a legitimate cultural phenomenon, pop culture phenomenon. But what it really was, was an ad campaign, a really freaking successful ad campaign. And then of course, there were other celebrity commercials, anything that featured a celebrity still felt really novel and special in those days. The Britney Spears Pepsi commercial from I think it's 2001 immediately comes to mind. This is to me, a millennial who was obsessed with Britney Spears the most iconic celebrity endorsement that I remember from my childhood and teen years. I actually remember downloading that song, the song that she sings in the Pepsi commercial from LimeWire so that my friends and I could listen to it back in the day. And I mean, I still, when I think of that commercial, I could still sing that song. I still remember what it looked like. It was just so iconic. And then there were the Gap commercials in the late 90s. Oh my god. You guys remember these. I know you guys remember these. There were a whole bunch of them. There were a series, but the one that I always think of immediately is the one where they danced to swing music. It was a commercial for Gap khakis, of all the things, just khaki pants. And it literally ignited a swing craze amongst like tweens everywhere, probably beyond tweens. I was a tween. It definitely made my little 12 year old friends and I obsessed with swing music. All of a sudden we were buying Gap khakis and listening to Zoot Suit Riot at our little middle school dances and thinking we looked so cool because of these Gap commercials. And there was a whole series of these from the late 90s. I think they started in 1998 into the early 2000s. There was the one where they sang uh, Mellow Yellow, which I think that's the one with Rashida Jones in it. That was for Gap chords. There was the fleece vest one. I mean, there were a whole bunch of them. This was also the era of the Gap holiday commercials with that iconic striped, Gap sweater, you could go down a whole rabbit hole and I have, have done this recently. If you want to, just type in like 90s Gap commercials into YouTube and just go nuts. And these were so popular because everybody was watching on TV. We all saw these commercials, and then we would come to middle school the next day and we'd run around the hallways of middle school singing that mellow yellow song, and everybody knew it was the song from the Gap commercial. And really, it could be any type of brand or business or whatever that would suddenly have a viral ad campaign, which obviously we saw from Milk, of all things, having probably the most viral ad campaign. There was the Taco Bell Chihuahua, which I think maybe was the early 2000s, but those commercials went so bad. They were so popular. I don't think we had the term viral then, but they were just so popular. They made the jump from advertising from TV into the zeitgeist immediately. Everyone was running around quoting that Taco Bell dog. And I'm sure that Taco Bell sales also went through the roof because of it. There were the Budweiser frogs and the Budweiser what's up commercial. I mean, talk about something just going immediately into the zeitgeist that was a commercial. This instantly became universally culturally understood, right? Like all of these things the Taco Bell doc, the Gab commercials, the Budweiser commercials, anything like this, they became these just universally understood reference points for pop culture. If you looked at your friend in the hallway and said, what's up? They knew what that meant just as much as they knew what it meant if you said they killed Kenny or referenced a whipped cream bikini or said as if. It was all pop culture. It was all part of what we understood pop culture to be at that time. And they're still important parts of what I think about when I think about pop culture in that time period. And clearly the line between advertising and entertainment was blurred back then, just like it is now. I think the difference now is that, back then we accepted engaging with legitimate and transparent advertising. At least when it came to things like commercials and brand taglines and print ads that I was using as decorations on my bedroom wall. Versus now, I think in the age of influencers, it feels like people really have a distaste for anything that they, can see is transparent advertising or you know is transparently promoting something automatically kind of turns people off but they will still willingly engage with content even if it is promoting something in a less obvious way and this whole advertising as entertainment idea also very much applied to kids things it wasn't just teens and adults when i was a kid I was obsessed with Nickelodeon. I've talked about this before, but I can't overstate this. I was 100% a Nickelodeon kid. I watched all of the shows, really for a period of time when I was young. It's all, pretty much all I watched. But I watched all the shows. I was obsessed with all of the stars. I bought the GAC. I read the Nickelodeon magazine, all of it. Nickelodeon was entertainment entirely for and about kids. I mean, it was just all about kids. But it was also, when you think about it, a really brilliant just advertising machine. They had the network, they had the magazines, they had the products, they had movies, they had Nickelodeon Studios, which was like an experiential component. So you would turn on Nickelodeon to watch all of that on Snick And then you'd see a commercial for the Good Burger movie, which you obviously wanted to see. And then you would see a commercial for Floam or Gap, which was a Nickelodeon product, a commercial for the tour that you could take of Nickelodeon Studios. Same with the Nickelodeon Magazine. It was entertainment, obviously, but it was also advertising for the brand and for the brand's products. American Girl Magazine too, which I loved. It was a magazine that was made or published by the makers of the American Girl dolls. And it had general content for young girls, like, I don't know, how to host a great sleepover, whatever, stories about real girls and their lives. But it also had a lot of content about the dolls, which clearly were the products that the company was selling so obviously that worked on me. I would read the magazines and I would see a spread with some girl with her American Girl of Today at the beach and I'd run to my mom and be like I need the American Girl of Today beach set mom because look how fun this looks. Catalogs too really were entertainment as much as they were advertising at least to me. I remember my friends and I just loved looking at catalogs, I could spend so much time just looking at a catalog, and it didn't really matter what it was, it could be the American Girl catalog, it could be a catalog, Alloy, it could be JC Penney or Spiegel, <laughs> it didn't matter. I just wanted to see what stuff was available. And what was being marketed to girls and women so that I could use that information to help form my tastes or my little tween identity. The one form of advertising, though, that I always feel was very blatantly advertising. It felt like advertising were infomercials, which is kind of an iconic form of 90s advertising when you think about it. But obviously, we knew in that case that we were engaging with Advertising. I mean, we knew that in most formats, but there was something about watching infomercials that made you not wanna fall for it. Maybe because the infomercials were just not cool. They didn't showcase a desirable or aspirational lifestyle or identity. They weren't made for that. And they also weren't made to be entertaining, although some of them were so bad that they were really entertaining. They were just basic, very matter of fact, kind of in your face advertising. They were meant to sell you something and that's really it. It was like the format what's the problem, show the problem, what's the solution, it's your product, (laughs) show the product, sell, close the deal, call to action, like they all follow that format. And some of them are so memorable though that they really have become iconic. I know you guys remember some of these, like the Pure Moods commercial, really any of those CD compilation commercials that for some reason would always be on late at night. I guess these weren't technically infomercials but I do feel like they fell into the same category. They were. late at night they were longer than a regular commercial there was a lot of talking (laughs) there was a phone number at the end they always asked you to mail a check or a money order to some random address to hopefully get the product shipped to you because this was the 90s and in order to purchase something not at a store we would physically mail a check in the mail to a strange unverified address and just hope that the thing that we were sending away for would show up like six weeks (laughs) later. But there were some truly iconic late night infomercial style commercials. Do you guys remember the Miss Cleo commercials? I don't know how I had forgotten about Miss Cleo, but when I stumbled upon this, it was like every light bulb in my 90s child brain just (laughs) lit up. Miss Cleo was an infomercial psychic on TV in the 90s. So you would see actual commercials on television for a reading from Miss Cleo with a phone number to call and I'm sure it charged some insane price like by the minute that was crazy expensive to talk to Miss Cleo so she could tell you your future you know if your crush liked you or when you were gonna die or whatever she told you. I have no idea. I'm actually really curious what the story behind Miss Cleo is. How did this start? Who was she? Was she an actual psychic that somebody discovered and decided to build a business around? Did she build this herself? I have so many questions. I need to do some research on this. And then there were the gadgets. So many infomercials for gadgets. Things like a thigh master or that Topsy Tail Ponytail thing. So many hair gadgets. But the Topsy Tail Ponytail thing was something that I actually really wanted. And essentially all it was was a plastic loop on basically a rat tail comb handle and you would use it to put the loop around your ponytail and then pull it through itself to create a topsy tail. Or there was harigami or things like blow pens, weird things that were kind of like toys, but they were just gadgets. And then there were these other kind of category of infomercials for things like hooked on phonics. (laughs) Do you guys remember those commercials? What even was hooked on Phonics? I actually have no idea what Hooked on Phonics was or what it was supposed to be for. I think maybe it was a reading program. I'm not sure but I remember seeing those commercials all the time and I know for a fact there was an 800 number you could call at the end of that Hooked on Phonics commercial so you could get more information and it would probably flash across the screen with a blue background in big bold yellow text with the phone number. Or the Muzzy commercials, oh my god you guys. I, this is such a deeply rooted memory, I didn't remember what the service or like the product was called but I remember this commercial literally word for word so I typed in the words from the commercial to google it it's for something called muzzy the commercial is this older woman in a blue very like late 80s early 90s looking dress and she's talking to the camera and there's these two kids in the background watching a TV like a cartoon in French. And the woman says to the camera, yes, that's French they're speaking. And no, these children aren't French. They're American. They've acquired their amazing new language skills from Muzzy. And then she holds up the Muzzy book program thing. Why do I remember this 25 years later? I mean, did I ever consider purchasing Muzzy to learn French? Not once. But will I remember that commercial verbatim until I die? Absolutely, 100%. And speaking of commercials that I will remember until I die, <laughs> I am going to wrap this up by sharing a few more of my favorite ad campaigns from that era. I have already mentioned a lot of my favorites throughout this episode, but these are my top five 90s ad campaigns that I have not already mentioned. Number five are the absolute vodka ads. These were so cool in my mind and I think it was because it was obviously an advertisement for alcohol and I was young so it automatically felt cool. But looking back these were actually really creative but also the concept was so simple and I love that. If you don't remember each ad featured an absolute vodka bottle in either like a different setting or decorated with a different theme with the word absolute blank underneath it and the word would go with the theme. So for example, a rainbow bottle that said absolute pride or a bottle in the shape of a swimming pool surrounded by palm trees that said absolute LA. Or there was one that had the absolute bottle with a halo over the top and it said absolute perfection. I remember that I only ever saw these ads in Rolling Stone magazine because it was the only magazine that I actually read in those days that would allow alcohol ads because all the other ones that I read were really aimed at teens. But they totally stand out to me because I think they were really creative, but also because of my age, they just felt so cool and so edgy because it was vodka. Number four, the colorful iMac ads that said, sorry, no beige on them. If there's one piece of Y2K era technology, or just one Y2K era artifact that I will be obsessed with, obsessed with as long as I live. It's the multicolored clear plastic iMac computers that came out in the late 90s. You remember these. They were the big, bulky, clear plastic computers that were blue, lime green, orange. I think there was a red one, a purple one. Multicolored. They were so cool. And this was the era of clear, plastic, colorful technology. I need Apple to release an updated version of this. I recently learned that they actually did re-release the iMac and it's multicolored, but I want the whole experience. I want the clear plastic. I want it to have bright, vibrant Y2K colors. This is my Roman Empire. Anyway, Apple already had really iconic marketing. You know, Their whole brand identity is really about creativity and innovation and going against the grain, so that makes sense. But when that original iMac came out, the blue iMac came out, which I think was in 1998, they had a series of print ads that just had the photo of the computer and it looked so futuristic. I mean, I remember seeing these as a kid and thinking like, wow, that, that's crazy. Who made that? It looked so unlike everything else that was available at that time so it had this computer on a white background and just big text at the top that said sorry no beige which was obviously poking fun at kind of the boring aesthetic of anything tech related in those days and they continued making really innovative cool Fun advertising campaigns. I mean, I have to do probably a follow up episode at some point about 2000s advertising because those iPod commercials with the dancing silhouettes, I mean, talk about iconic. Number three are those herbal essences commercials from the 90s. If you lived through the 90s, you know the ones I'm talking about, okay? I don't know who came up with associating the experience of using herbal essences shampoo which was kind of a generic drugstore brand cheap shampoo with the experience of having a very theatrical exaggerated orgasm in the grocery store but this ad campaign went on for years like this must have done really well i mean obviously it stands out in my mind The first ones that I remember seeing are the woman in the grocery store and then there's just a woman washing her hair and screaming and, you know, then she's back in the grocery store and she's like, yes, yes, she's so excited about her hair. But I also remember some later on with the similar situation where the woman was in a hair salon chair or just other places. So they really stayed committed to that bit. But honestly, yeah, I mean, it worked because it's been over 25 years and I still remember that so clearly. And also for the record, herbal essences really did smell so good. Maybe not quite that good, but very good. Number two is the Be Like Mike Gatorade campaign. This is going way back. I think this was 1990, 1991. It was very early 90s. I was super young. Michael Jordan was literally everywhere in the 90s. It was like big supermodels, Jim Carrey and Michael Jordan, you could not escape them in the 90s. And I think Michael Jordan did do multiple ad campaigns or like spokesman things. But the Be Like Mike one for Gatorade really stands out. Obviously, When advertising uses a famous person or a beautiful person or a really talented person to promote their product, the subtext is, if you use our product, you can be like this person who you like and admire. But Gatorade really just spelled it out for us in this campaign and you gotta admire it, you know? Drink Gatorade, be like Mike, as if anybody could do that. I mean, that'd be some powerful Gatorade, but okay. And number one, I don't know why this campaign just lives in my brain the way that it does. But the I can't believe it's not butter commercials with Fabio. (laughs) I don't know why this has me laughing so hard. I think it is so funny. I kind of had totally forgotten about it. But as soon as it came back into my mind, it was such a vivid memory. It's like it all came flooding back. And this is one of those ad campaigns that I just remember seeing so often and probably for a really long time. I feel like this was just always. it was just there. It was always on you could always find it. And the Commercials were basically just Fabio with his long blonde hair saying I can't believe it's not butter and that was the gist of it. It was like celebrity spokesperson at its most simple form. It was like here's Fabio saying the tagline. And he eventually did do commercials for the I can't believe it's not butter spray as well. So it must have been a long-term campaign with him as the star. And I honestly think that this is the only reason I even know who fabio is is because of this i can't believe it's not butter campaign from the 90s but you know honestly there were worse things that you could be known for you could be the woman on the Shake Weight commercial <laughs> which was well into the 2000s so we will have to save that for another time Maybe I will have to do a future episode on 2000s advertising so we can cover things like the shake weight. But for now, I will leave you here. As always, thank you so much for joining me for another episode. I appreciate all of you tuning in. I appreciate when you rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. And of course, when you share episodes or the show with your friends, I will be off next week for Thanksgiving. So I'll be back the week after that. I'll talk to you all then. Bye.